ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Yes, it is so good to be back. I am David Grubb, and you are listening to the very first episode of the Hard to Paint Daily Podcast. This is a completely new medium for me, so um, I'm sure this show will get tweaked. It'll get better. At least I hope so. Um, If this is the bottom, then uh, we can only go up from here, and I just be I'm excited to see what the future brings after doing 11 months on air uh, in New Orleans for my show, Hard in the Paint. So if you have been a listener to that show, thank you for sticking with me here as I begin this new chapter. And if you're new to the HITP experience, welcome. I hope you enjoy it. Um, We try to be insightful. We try to be informative. We try to be funny. And we try to bring you a lot of different perspectives around the teams you love, about what goes on on the field, on the court, and what goes on off the court that impacts more than just the scores, and we try not to just be a hot take show. That's not my thing. If you want somebody to have a hot take, if you want to watch first take, if you want to see people go back and forth, this probably isn't the show. Um, But I do love to bring on guests who challenge me, who um, have great uh, understanding of the topics that we're discussing. And, you know, a lot of times, I'll tell you, you go into a concept and you have an idea of where an interview is going to go and it just takes its own route. And I love that. I love the idea of uh, just seeing where the conversation goes and maybe finding out something that I hadn't, on, hadn't planned on asking before. So that's my style. Um, and we're going to try to just maintain that. I'll have some of my favorite guests from the radio show who come on and I'll continue to bring some of the best writers, experts and commentators around I want to remind you to follow me on social media at DMGrub and to please check out my website, HITPWithDG.com. Uh, we've just been reformatting it, making sure that it's up to par for you as you visit now. Um, all of my articles that I write and wrote for uh, CrescentCitySports.com, uh, for Nola, SportsNola.com originally, and also currently I write with TheBirdRights.com, so you can check all all of those out um, on the site. You can also see all of my radio and television appearances that I've done on other programs and um, just a ton of information. You can also visit the HITP online store and we got some great items there for men, women, kids, and that stuff helps us keep uh, this show going. So check out the store, see if there are items you like. Again, if you have any impact, uh, input or feedback, I'd love to hear it. So please hit me up at DM Grub on Twitter, and uh, just let me know how you like the show, let me know how you like the store, let me know how you like the site. Today, my guest is going to be Marlon Favorite, Big Fave, host of Inside the Trenches, correspondent for the NFL Network, and so much more. We're going to discuss the dangers and concerns over restarting college sports and what the future may hold for the NCAA and uh, the rest of the sporting world as 
the coronavirus and COVID-19 situation continues to only get worse over recent weeks. That's coming up, but first, the New Orleans Pelicans are in Orlando. They are practicing in anticipation of the NBA season restart on July 30th when they are scheduled to play the Utah Jazz. Zion Williamson looks great. The Vets look rested and ready. In this unusual circumstance, this unprecedented situation that uh, these players are facing, uh, you have to just wonder how all of it's going to come together. But Alvin Gentry is very what happy with what he's seen so far was, uh, out of his you team. Know, our defense was trending in the right direction uh, offensively. I thought we were playing really good basketball. Um, I thought Alonzo uh, Ball was probably playing as well as any guard in the league. Uh, during that stage, and then obviously uh, Zion was uh, feeling much more, you know, he, he was getting much more acclimated to what we were trying to do and uh, playing at a real, real high level. I think he and uh, B.I. was learning how to uh, exist out on the floor together. Uh, you know, Drew was playing really good basketball, so uh, what we wanted to do is not come back and say, okay, let's start all over. Uh, basically what the message we were trying to deliver is like, let's start where we left off because we were doing exactly what we wanted to be doing and that was playing our best basketball as the season was winding down. Yeah, so all things being equal, hey, coach. there's no way not to like the Pelicans' chances to at least grab, get into the 8-9 and play-in. I mean, you look at their schedule, you look at the teams that they're facing and who they've lost. The Pelicans have a lot of favorable matchups. Their depth is an important thing to have. Uh, Etuan Moore talked about that this past weekend. The fact that they have nine, ten guys that they can play on a nightly basis is, and who all have experience and have gotten minutes is a very big key for this team. Their young legs are going to help when you're playing eight games in 14 days. That's certainly going to help. This is a relatively young team. Your veteran um, experience that you have, you rely on a Derek Favors. Um, you rely on a Drew Holiday. You rely on a J.J. Redick. You rely on Etwan Moore in these situations. 190 playoff games between uh, the four of them. And uh, they're going to have to set the tone on a day-to-day basis for this team. That leadership is going to be so crucial. Uh, and I think that when you have these young guys, living situation is not as bad for the young guys as the older guys. Older guys are used to living a certain way. A lot of the guys on the Pelicans are just barely removed from AAU type situations where you went off and played, lived in a dorm for, the, for a couple weeks, played a bunch of games, and you, then you go back home. So I'm sure there's part of that that's an easy adjustment for them. Guys will sit in a room, make, play video games, dot, 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 and do that. But for the vets who have families that they're leaving behind. You know, Drew Holiday's wife is pregnant. Derek Favors has kids. J.J. Redick has a kid. Um, you know, so you have these guys who are leaving, leaving their families behind, and that's a little bit harder. Um, but I think that the time, kind of leadership that the Pelicans have, when you have a Redick who is as good as, and as intense a competitor as you're going to find, Holiday, a guy who's mellow, same with Etwan, guys, don't get too up, too, don't get too far down. Um, and then you have a guy like Derek Favors and Drew Holiday, the anchors of your defense. And in every sport, the strength of your team is up the middle. You know, in baseball, catcher, shortstop, center field. All of those need to be able to be strong defensive players. In football, it starts in the middle. Your interior line on both sides of the ball. 
Your linebacking core better be strong up the middle. In basketball, it's your point guard and your center. Those are the two, the head and the tail of your defense. When you have Drew Holiday, one of the best on-ball defenders at any position, quite possibly should be considered for defensive player of the year. And I don't think that's a stretch to say. I think you could also say that, quite frankly, even in the years that Anthony Davis was on his team, Drew Holiday was the better defender than Davis was. He was asked to do more consistently and consistently performed at a higher level. So to have Drew Holiday in that kind of conversation is not a stretch as Defensive Player of the Year this year. I think he's been overlooked, certainly because the Pelicans' record is what it is. Even if they go 8-0 during these games, they'll be at 500. And that certainly is, is going to have an impact on any kind of voting. But he and Favors, the two of them, when they're on the court defensively with Ingram, with Lonzo Ball, who came on exceptionally well over his last 20 games, shooting the ball efficiently, handling it exceptionally well, getting people involved. And then you add Zion Williamson to that mix. Again, that was the best starting lineup in the NBA. The best starting lineup in the NBA over that stretch. A plus 26 net rating. Defensively, 91 point, just just over 91, under 92 defensive rating. The only team that was better was the Milwaukee Bucks. And when you look at the best players in the league, like seven of the top 10 as far as efficiency and net rating goes, belong to the Milwaukee Bucks. But the Pelicans as a group, that collective, the strongest lineup in the league the last 20 games. And now you're bringing these guys in. Zion Winston looks fitter, more fit. I can't believe I said fitter. More fit. So if he's lost weight, been working on his footwork, been paying attention defensively, and that's something that we've heard out of him. Brandon Ingram talked a lot about um, over the last few practices. Brandon Ingram has talked about learning how to defend better when he gets to the four spot, watching a lot of film, paying attention on how he can do things offensively and defensively from all four of the positions that he's been asked to play sometimes for the Pelicans. The mental part of the game for the, the younger guys was such a key to them getting better. And now, if this season gets played, that's what you're looking for as far as what did they use that time for? How did they get better mentally? Are they more mature than they were? Does Jackson Hayes come back more focused on the defensive end? Shooting will be at a premium in the bubble. Shooting will be at a premium in the bubble. Offenses are going to struggle. You have a lot of teams that are bringing in new players, guys who they haven't seen, or integrating players who have been out due to injury. Scoring, there's going to be a lot of ISO. There's going to be a lot of just basic pick and roll out of one. Scoring is going to be difficult early on as guys try to find their rhythm. But you can play defense. Defense travels anywhere. And it starts with effort, and then the second part is knowing your assignments. The Pelicans have no excuse not to, at the very least, give effort. It's a a struggle a little bit more not having Jeff Bizdelic go down to Orlando as the architect of that defense, but they know their principles and they're learning their roles. And if Zion Williamson is a better defender than he was and you can play him and favors together more than the few minutes that they were able to get defensively, if when you put Zion in at the five and move Brandon Ingram to the four, 
They are not a disaster defensively. They've been great offensively with Zion at the five, but a disaster defensively. Then the Pelicans have as good a shot in this weird circumstance. I'd give them a puncher's chance to do anything at this point. I, I have no expectation as to how high or how low this could go. And the only serious contender outside of Memphis, to me at this point now, looking at the, at the situations of who's missing whom uh, and who the Pelicans have to, to deal with in San Antonio, Sacramento, Portland, Memphis, and uh, <clears throat> Phoenix, uh, only Portland looks like they're a real challenge. Only Portland. Because they are getting Damian Lillard, they are getting Zach Collins, they're getting Yusuf Nurkic back. So they are going to be a threat. But if the Pelicans can defend, I don't, I don't see any doubt that they find themselves in the postseason. The other major issues, just to pivot, we're going to talk about within the bubble. One of the things that's also going on is that the NBA made this decision to put, um, allow players to put messages on the backs of their jerseys. And some have chosen not to. Some have chosen that they will. Kyle Corver said he's going to wear Black Lives Matter on the back of his jersey. There was some discussion about putting names on it. Black Lives Matter is going to appear on the court. I'm going to tell you why I don't care for this gesture. And people say, Grub, well, you know, it brings attention. It keeps people's attention. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. These are performative issues. These are things that people do to show you that they care, but they don't really care. This is not substantive. What you need from these leagues, what you want them to do if they're going to be allies in fighting systemic racism, which they say that they are, then you need them to put together something more concrete than allowing you to wear a slogan on the back of your shirt. How quickly will that wear off? How quickly will that impact be nothing? Are we going to see these jerseys sold in the NBA store? Are we going to make the movement more of a commodity and let people commercialize the pain and suffering of black people in this country? You're going to play the games, play the games. If you're going to play the games, play the games. But see, no matter how many PSAs you run, no matter what you put on the court, it's not how you're going to convince people that these issues count. The weight has always been behind money and power. And when white people in particular flex money or power, that's when things get done. The owners in the NBA are overwhelmingly white and they are overwhelmingly rich. And if they want to make a real difference with social change, it's not going to happen with what you see on the court. It's not going to happen with what you see during a commercial break of these games. What's going to have to happen is in places where you and I will never see. Rooms that we will never have access to. Talking to people we will never meet. And if that doesn't happen, then all of this is just theater. It's all just theater. And I don't want to be a part of that. And I don't think the player should be a part of it. What message is right? You can't put people's names back there because then you're choosing, picking and choosing. 
somebody as an avatar for all of that suffering. You got 22 teams, 15 players, even if all of them had messages on their backs. You don't even scratch the surface of the people whose names we should know. There aren't enough slogans to get somebody during the game to have a a revelation in their life and change their stance. The NBA has to be active outside of the entertainment bubble. I don't care about the Orlando bubble, Disney World bubble, the campus, whatever they want to call it. They have to be active outside of entertainment. The owners have to put money into real change. The owners have to support programs that produce real change. If that's what the NBA wants to say it's about, if it wants to understand its players, then that's what it needs to do. Because we're all doing this caught up, we're all caught up in this right now of doing reflexive actions and people are all of a sudden asking, acting like they are learning about these issues for the first time and doing things to say, oh, we never realized. You have in Washington, the football team that has had that racial slur of a name for its entire history. You have a baseball team, the Atlanta Braves, that does tomahawk chops. You have the Cleveland Indians that has tried to minimize Chief Wahoo over the years, but still uses it. And this is a fight that Native Americans have been fighting for decades. This is not new. They have been asking about this for decades. We did this in college sports. No one remembers anymore that Marquette was the Warriors. They're the Golden Eagles. They're the Marquette Golden Eagles. You don't even care. No one cares. When, when uh, St. John's went from the Red Men to the Red Storm, it has not made a difference. Syracuse from the Orange Men to the Orange, no difference. You do not get to decide how other people should be honored and what they should think of as an honor. And when you hear people say, well, just change the, the Redskins' name to Warriors and throw the spear right back on the side of the helmet. If America loved Native Americans as warriors so much, then why did they try to exterminate them? Why did they try to marginalize them to the point where you don't see a group of Native Americans in any major city in this country? You walk down the street, you won't see five or six Natives in most cities. But you respect them? And these, these names honor them? You don't get to decide how people are honored. If they say this does not honor us, that this does not represent us, this is not how we wish to be characterized, then you listen to them. It's not an honor if the person who you say you're honoring doesn't want it. And it's just a name. It's just a name. If your team changed its name, do you root for the team or do you root for the name? And you say, well, that's the name I always knew. That's the team I grew up rooting for. You grew up for the, rooting for the players. And we live in just a different time now. It's just a completely different time. Kids don't care about teams the way they used to. They care about players. Team names are 
you know, more so about where that player is and what colors you're going to wear in fashionable sense rather than this undying loyalty in particular. College sports, obviously, a lot more traditional and people are more, but they were moving ahead of this before anybody. So it's time for these things to change. It's been time for these things to change. And if we ask ourselves, why is this the time that you see people all of a sudden trying to bow to pressure? Part of it is money. If FedEx hadn't said, we're pulling our sponsorship. If Nike hadn't said, we're not selling this merchandise. If the the District of Columbia had said you can't move the team back into the district until you change the name. None of those things would have happened, but they've been people have been trying those things for years. But now the spotlight is shining a little bit brighter. And this is where the danger is, is where we are going to use sports to make everybody feel like things have gone back to normal. And they have not. We're just going to use sports to make everybody think things go back to normal. You'll see a couple of name changes on teams. You'll see a couple of messages from teams. And then what's going to happen is business will go back to usual. And that's where we are in all of this. In this turning point, in this moment in history, we have the chance to decide whether or not we're going to actually do some changes or if we're going to fall back and allow them to rearrange the chairs and tell us it's a new room. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when I come back, you'll be listening to my conversation with the one and only Marlon Favorite here on Hard in the Paint with David Grubb. Serving birds from the curb, peanut butter, no jelly, mac, no cheese, milk, no cereal. We lacking the materials from the very bottom up to the managerial. I just paid a cost to be my very own boss. Learn to do without, make it through the drought without a doubt. Cause the sacrifice is what it's all about. Make it last, add a little water to the shampoo. Landlord knocking and he want the past due. Pockets on some vile shit, you know that wild shit. You know that grimy season, jump the turnstile shit. Moving to the sounds of the tick and attack of the clock. Grinding my hustle, you can call it my gristle. Putting in the muscle, cause I gotta get the paper. No handouts and favors, this is passion and labor. Uh, not a taker. I'm looking for the help wanted. No shortcuts if you want more. Cuts. I had to bring back one of my staples from the show. Um, a guy that we talk to every week, Monday and Friday. It was either a Marlin Monday or a Favorite Friday. So I had to bring it back because there's so many issues going on with the world, particularly of college football that we have to get to the bottom of. And so, Big Fave, man, it's always good to talk to you. I'm glad we could do this again. Man, thanks for having me on the show, D-Grub. Uh, hey, I like I like the visual, though, man. I know I got to fix my little lighting up in the background and everything, um, fix the soundproof and everything. But, uh, you know, this is the back house studio until we get back to normal. But, man, thanks for having me back on the show. Man, you know um, – you give me great insight. You know this from all the perspectives. You coach, you play, uh, you played the game for at a high level. Um, you've seen it all. You've seen it all. So in this time where we are seeing unprecedented changes to the, the landscape of college sports, you know, there's, there's certainly um, a unique perspective that you can bring to that. I wanted to start first with the news today. Um, and this is on Friday um, when we're recording this. Texas has canceled high school football. And for people who don't understand just how big that is, for the state of Texas to call off high school football for this fall, just can you explain 
Marlon, to them, how hard it, is, it must have been, how serious these, this must be for them to take that step. That is huge. That is bigger than big for high school football. And I want to start with the size of the state and how serious that state takes football. Uh, my, my sister and my brother, uh, Melkyle Mariani, they live out in Dallas. I actually went there last week to visit. And when I tell you, my little nephew's middle school out in Anna, Texas, right outside of Dallas, has its own stadium, like the size of West Jeff Stadium. It's, it's crazy. And uh, what really stands out to me is for them to take that step to say, because of coronavirus, because of how not moderate, but extremely um, risk this is for those kids to be out there playing, not having all the resources says a lot. And it really uh, sets the tone for high school football across the country. That's the most important piece because, again, Texas, if, if this was a state like, let's say, New Hampshire or Delaware, a smaller state that say, hey, we're canceling football, it doesn't have the impact and the effect uh, that a great state of Texas have on actually canceling that sport. Because, I mean, it's, it's Texas, Louisiana, California, Florida, in whatever order you want to put them, as far as these states that emphasize and, and live football 365 days out of the year. And like you said, the scale in Texas alone, when we talk about the number of schools, the types of football, whether it's 11-man, whether it's 7-on-7, seven seven, they, they do everything at every level in Texas. And for them to understand that, that they can't pull this off, or at least don't want to attempt to with the risk. Um, I think it's just, it's, it's the first domino in what other states around the country are now going to have to do. Yeah, they, they set the tone that if you hit the head pin, all the other pins fall right in position. And you mentioned the states, us here in Louisiana. I mean, we're a football state. Uh, this morning I had to drop my son off uh, at practice. Uh, they're doing the... Um, you know, they're doing all the conditioning and, and they're just preparing for whatever it may be. And I talked to his head coach, Coach Ryan Manali over at Dillard Cell. I said, Coach, how are we looking? Are we going to be able to – when are they going to go back? He said, well, we're going to practice this week um, and then next week, and then they're going to go on break. And it, and it appears that everything is going to um, start on time. And I appreciated uh, the level of optimism he uses uh, in regard to them starting up. But the most important piece, more, than, more, more important than anything else, is the safety of the kids. Now, D. Grubb, we've been talking, we've been going ping-ponging yep. about this particular situation for months now. And when we talk about high school football, we think limited resource resources. We think, okay, these are children – most of the kids may be asymptomatic, but because of this and the, just the unprecedented times we're living in right now, parents are forced to work double. You heard me talking earlier. I'm training, uh, doing uh, media obligations, uh, still having a company to run, uh, just doing any and everything. Uh, shoot, at some point at this and still a little bit in there, going out cutting grass and just utilizing other sources of income. Now, here's the kicker. Uh, my mother. Right, and my father, who are, who are both well in their 60s, they babysit for us, right? They go pick up my son a lot of times when I'm busy. If I'm out in London or doing a show in LA or even out in Baton Rouge, I have, I'm very thankful uh, to the Lord that I have supporting families. But again, 
um, with the kids going back into heavy population with school mm -hmm. and with the kids in a contact sport like football, it's not, it's the total opposite of what we just, what, what, what we uh, call social distancing is going to be extremely tough to have those all things coexist at the same time. It's, it's virtually impossible. So, um, I mean, Texas had to make a big decision and they knew how, uh, how much of a large impact their decision would affect the uh, ripple effect that you mentioned uh, across the country. So on the collegiate level, we already had the Ivy League shut down and cancel its football season, say maybe they'll do it in 2021, but they're done for 2020. We've seen a program as big and prolific as Stanford, which is always rated as one of the number one athletic programs in the country and has access to some of the great medical minds in this country and the world. This is, people go to Stanford <laughs> to get the very best education in medicine or in technology and all those things. They're shutting down. We've seen the Big Ten already say that they're, they've cut back to only conference games. We've already seen the ACC is pushing for that. The Big 12 is pushing for that. The Pac-12 is pushing for that. The only ones that haven't said it are the SEC. But it seems to me at this point, once you've canceled the non-conference games, all those schools, those non-Power 5 schools, who needed those games, those non-conference games, even the D1s, not the F FCS, but the FBS schools that needed those money games, if they're not there, a year from now, there are going to be 120 high-level college football teams. We're going to be talking maybe about 40 or 50 and we talk, it's really going to be the power five might be the only group that can survive this. Yeah. What you're talking about is, is serious. Uh, the impact of forcing school, you talk about the smaller schools like Nickel state uh, where I know folks at coach Tim Rebo, we actually worked with them uh, last summer uh, working the camps and you got a guy like Frank Wilson guy I had a conversation with a few days ago you know, he's trying to pull together and piece together this puzzle over there at McNeese. Those schools need to play against Texas. They need to play against the LSUs of the world to survive. Um, you look at that, it's a serious impact. And then um, how important it is to make the television revenue for the big conference, you know, for the Power Five schools. So with all of this rolling in one bunch, it, it would make sense. It would make much more sense to buy time at this point. Right now, we're, we're, we're in prayer and we're buying time for a potential switch up and move to spring. I know that's what high school's been talking about, but it's, it's again, if we would have just, and I still stick to this date, July 1st, had we waited before, you know, stayed in- To the, open everything up. Yes, we, we could have saved the fall, but we rushed back to get back to what we call the old normal. And now we're in this situation where, hey, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a ripple effect once again. Uh, what affects, okay, the NFL, for all intents and purposes, we know that they can potentially go on with a late start because of the numbers are so small. It's only 2,200 guys you're managing. That's in, not including the staff, but again, they can afford to do corona tests every day right right those high school kids can't afford that nope so i mean it, it just seems to me all right look we've got a situation now where the schools are clearly saying that 
that that they are having troubles uh, protecting their students. Let's just go down the list of schools that, and this is not even a complete list, but we're talking about Texas has had double digits of people test positive. Clemson, we knew had double digits. Texas Tech has had double digits of, of, of kids test positive. LSU has had double digits of kids test positive. Carolina just had 37 players and coaches test positive. Kansas State, I mean, we're talking about school. These are major schools that should have all the resources. And yet we are seeing these huge numbers of cases. And now I'm throwing some data at you that may even, you know, make this even a little bit more troubling. The population of people from 15 to 24, based on the current death rates, we should expect at least a thousand college age students to die this year from coronavirus. How many of those, because of like we talk about with football being so close, and here's another one, and this will touch you particularly. Now I was reading this in an article in The Ringer, so I wanna make sure I give them their credit. Doctors also say, People with a body mass index index higher than 31 are susceptible to long-term damage. The average lineman in college football has a body mass index. The average, not the heaviest, the average is 36. So that's a and, and what a lineman? How close are you that you can hey, smell well, the next dude's right breath? Man, let me tell you something. At LSU, I danced with 30 and 33% body fat. Um, on top of that, when I was getting ready for the combine, I was able to, I'll say, put more focus on getting that number down. I think I got that number down to about 24. So, again, you look at what's happening with the first wave of corona, the folks who suffered were the folks who had diabetes, you know, high hypertension, of, of all of these underlying conditionings that we're talking about and we're hearing about all of the time. So um, I have to work at LSU uh, this fall. We, we just, we're, we're, we're in talks and we're discussing how we're going to format it. It is a scenario where we won't do the tailgate. We will just record the pregame from the studio and then do it again from the studio, um, controlling the amount of fans that's in there. Look, all of this is all risky. Again, we have to really base the decision off of the data and also off of the solution. Those are the two most important pieces because we don't have a solution and the data is screaming, numbers are going up. Now, the second wave, we don't know how potent the second wave because we, we do see some data and it states that the corona cases is going up, but the mortality rate is starting to stagnate. But again, time will only tell um, how long that can sustain, yeah. And like, it's not just the mortality. That's the thing too, is we have to keep making sure that people understand that this discussion, it's not health or death. It doesn't work that way with coronavirus. Cause we talking about lung scarring, respiratory issues, possible lung, tra lung transplants. And th they're serious. And we still don't even know the long-term complications cause there have been studies now that show that like in Spain, for example, they're not seeing a high number of people who have the antibodies. So herd immunity may not be a thing with this. We just don't know. And like you said, to me, there's a certain level just on that. And we'll get this deeper in just a second, but there's a certain level on that that's unconscionable. When you don't have enough information to have certainty, particularly when you are dealing with young people, to me, 
you do you always err on the side of caution. You err on the side of caution each time. I think we do as not only a country but as a world, we have to stop looking at the amount of money that's lost because of coronavirus and start focusing more on the lives and preserving life. Um, it should never be a scenario where money comes over life preservation. And I think at the point we are right now, because it's a lot of stuff that's going on right now, a lot of shifts, a lot of changes. I mean, between coronavirus, racism, and this upcoming election, I mean, do they even have space to talk sports? <laughs> uh, you know, and it's, and it's sad, but unfortunately it's true. And as we sit here on Hard on the Paint, one thing we want to focus on is we do know that sports do bridge this gap, right? This gap of um, not necessarily pointing at one issue, whether it's racism or whether it's coronavirus or police, whatever the case may be. The one thing that we do need to focus on about sports is, is about unity, right? So right now, all sports figures, everyone who, who actually, you know, dedicated their time and was blessed with a certain level of elite uh, ability to perform and be entertaining, right? They're saying, let's support the doctors, you know, the folks on the front line, uh, the scientists, research uh, departments, uh, folks that's really trying to jump on top of this new wave of corona. Because again, coronavirus has been around for, for a long, for almost forever. But this particular wave has been, as we mentioned, it's, it's been sad, man, because we've lost so many people. So uh, there is an anxiety. There is a worry, right, um, about how long uh, it's going to be until we come up with a solution. Will this virus go dormant? You know, you, now we're living in a time that our great-great-grandparents lived through and heard about and seen with swine flu and, and, and all these different uh, conditions that unfortunately took a lot of lives. So um, the sports world, the leader world that we come from, it's going to be important that they think um, about the, the, the kids and their parents and their family as opposed to just getting them on back out there and, and, and getting back to, uh, to entertaining. Another big problem, and that's something that, that you and I both have strong feelings on too, is this signing of waivers. And we have a number of programs that are asking students to sign, to sign these waivers, um, that if they get sick or something happens to them, that they will not hold the school at fault. I, again, have a problem with that, asking these young people to give up their rights in that way. When it's the school's job to protect them, that the school, when they come in your house, they say, I'm going to take care of you like you're my own. You wouldn't ask your son or your daughter to sign a waiver for their safety in real life. So why would you ask these kids? And then the other part is, there is no mandatory reporting of data. We have a number of schools that have not reported a single test. And that, to me, is a problem, again, with the NCAA. How can you call yourself a governing body and during a pandemic, you exercise no power? Yeah, that, that's another issue that, that we're dealing with uh, as far as leadership, once again, even on a collegiate level of sports. Like, where, where is leadership? I, I definitely hear that cry because at the very end of the day, yes, these kids are a lot of the athletes that are skilled players are under that body of fat index, right? And they are at a healthy age, uh, so say, right? But then you have guys, like, give you an example, a good friend of mine, Patrick Peterson, 
right? Patrick Peterson was diagnosed with diabetes at a very – and he's a healthy guy and has the right. resources. So you think he's trying to jump out there and, and, and just play football because this is something clearly he loves, uh, the, the level of talent he has. Uh, so, you know, think about that. It's, it's more than just um, young folks and old folks. It's actually young folks that have these conditions. I talked to my good friend uh, the other day. His daughter, she has underlying conditions as well. She, he, he doesn't feel comfortable with her going back into the general population of school. So it's a lot of things we, we need to think about. We do need to revisit um, virtual learning. I know my wife, she's a school teacher. She teaches third grade. She's, she doesn't want to just go jump back in the classroom. Why she doesn't want to jump back in the classroom? Because when they told them to leave the classroom, the conditions and the numbers weren't even like this. And we don't see it getting better. And it's not better in the classroom now. They have not, there's no protocols. You know, I got, you know, like I said, I got a 12-year-old. That's she's right. supposed to go to school in the fall. And she tells me every day, Daddy, are you going to make me go back into that building? And I said, no, I'm not. I'm not going to make you go into that building. If I don't feel it's safe, I'm not putting you in there. And if it's not safe for them, and I have to, I keep emphasizing this too, you and I both know what it's like to go to schools and look, I was, I even went to magnet schools and all that, but I still know at public school, a lot of them didn't have a nurse or she was only there, what, two days a week because she was being shared with another school. Yeah. You might have two custodians for your whole building. Who's keeping these gyms clean, dude? Who's keeping these locker rooms sanitary? Who's going to be the one to check? You know, I, go, I dropped my daughter off at the hairdresser the other day. I couldn't go inside with her. And they still check both our temperatures before yeah. I could leave her. You, who's going to be responsible on that coaching staff? Who's going to be the one to write those numbers down every day and keep those records? Because at some point, somebody's going to ask to see the numbers. Somebody's going to want to see the numbers and they're going to demand it and they're going to, their demand is going to be granted. Uh, because, again, this is a serious uh, case that we have here on our hands. And uh, to your point with your daughter, uh, just the different, you know, bringing her back in that environment. She's 12, so she's in middle school. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> again, these are kids that may have went on a lot of vacations over the summer. They may have been in different houses. I don't think that the powers to be is actually paying attention because they have nannies and, and, and nursery uh, built-in houses and stuff like that. For the majority of the folks that's in these Power 5 programs are doing this, they go back home to their family. Some of these guys have kids and fiancés. Some of these guys have grandparents that, that, are, that are ill and can't really do Right. Uh, at least they're going into a bubble and it's three months and it's not that many folks. And we still having tro- problems. We still we got folks. Still having problems. When they having some problems at one of the golf tournaments about a few yep. weeks back? Golf tournament. Yep. Caddies kept bringing it in. And then that shut down the whole event? Yeah, even at UFC, you had have, you have where trainers got it. Everybody had, you know, everybody with that party had to go. So yeah, yeah. it's... 
you're talking about a football sideline, and you and I both know this, when you dress, the guys who dress on the college football sideline, that's 80 to 100 dudes on a home game. Easy. And that's just the players. That's not supporting staff as well. And we're talking about not just coaches, like you said, ball people. You know, the downs, down the, um, the yard marker, uh, the people who got to hold those, the, the, the athletic training assistants who are generally students. And that's what people don't remember, too. A lot of these, these athletic trainers are students who are in sports medicine helping out. And you know another thing, mm-hmm. logistics. No one's thinking about logistics. Game day right? staff, yeah. <laughs> game day logistics and management moving forward. Okay, we talked about this on your show on the radio a few weeks ago, right? We used the New Orleans Saints, for example. Yep. Drew Brees, let's say, for instance, and hyper, this is all hypothetical, folks. He catches the coronavirus. Demario Davis catches it. Cam Jordan catches it. Now we know that those guys have to go quarantine for two weeks. So now that's a what's the new two-week injury, right? So now you have to take the guy that was backing him, those guys, and now they have to go. They couldn't contact the coronavirus. Now you got to take that entire group and quarantine them. Who's going to actually be out there performing? Who, what if your whole old line gets it? Who's going like, <laughs> you going to put five backups out there guarding your quarterback? You, man, come on. It's, it just seems to me – the questions are, are greater than the answers right now. We don't have any answers, really. We have attempts. We have things that we could try, but we don't have anything that we know that is going to work. And I also like to think about the fact that if there is going to be a challenge to the status quo in college football, college sports in general, of unpaid labor, this is the question to do it on. Because if you're telling me that students can't come on campus, but I'm having football players on campus. And you are telling me they are not students. You're telling me they're essential workers. You are telling me that's exactly it. They are essential workers. And once that's the case, and I think a university president is going to be the first one to decide that, is that we cannot leave ourselves open to a employment claim from a player who said, you brought me back to work. I wasn't going to class. I wasn't studying nothing. I came here to work, and you All mandated right. it. That's going to be a big legal hurdle, too. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, it's too many different vantage points with this subject on how we're going to manage without a solution for coronavirus. That's the bottom line at the very end of the day. Um, obviously, you have programs that are much um, or in better position of wealth than others, Right. You have some programs that can afford, like I say, we're going back to the Power Five. We're going back to the NFL, NBA. Again, they have the money to pay for all of these tests on a daily. Think about it. Let's look at the bigger picture of it all. Let's let's look at out of this entire ball of confusion if you are to look at a certain area. Who's to say any of us had it? We're not getting tested. Again, the test, now they have the free test. It takes eight days for them to get the results back from that, right? So who's to say who actually had it? The reason we're hearing about all of these celebrities, we're hearing about all of these uh, um, coaches and players because they're actually getting tested, <laughs> you know? So I, I think, um, again, that's something to pay attention to. Remember, people can have the coronavirus with no symptoms. I don't feel anything. Uh, that was Kevin Durant's whole deal. He didn't have any symptoms. 
but he had coronavirus, so he had to go quarantine. Look, man, it's it's just way too much at risk for yeah. us. That yeah, Texas. That like I said to your to your question earlier, the fact that Texas said no high school football, man, that's oh, that's pressure on the neighboring states too. Absolutely, and I think if you can't have this happening in different ways across the country, it has to be a shared sacrifice in this regard. But I also think this is the right time for it to happen because now you do get the opportunity to think about how you really want this game to go moving forward. It gives an opportunity for folks to empower players more and say, what is it that you need and demand? It shouldn't be the players over at UCLA saying, we need an independent doctor. And it shouldn't be this group over here saying, well, we need this at our school. There should be a uniform players bill of rights. And what we've seen is the NCAA is unwilling to do that. And there's been also heavy criticism on the, N- on the NCAA on that, the licensing uh, paperwork, because most people who have read it said, There's no teeth to that. There's no real ability for players to capitalize on it. So if if the NCAA is going to continue to be this unresponsive, do you see this current model lasting much longer? This current model isn't going to last. I think we're seeing the last days of this current model, a lot of current models, a lot of uh, structures across the way the country is structured and the way it's uh, independent small businesses are structured and the way it's uh, Fortune 500s, and then NCAA falls right under that category. It's gonna, you're gonna have, have to have major change. Um, it, it, was, it was an insult. I'm not struggling, per se, but not fording my life in terms of wealth. Mm-hmm. As a student athlete at LSU, and $20 million academic center is being built. And a $4 million tiger uh, habitat is being built. And jersey sales are going through the roof for all of us. And we're not able to capitalize off of it. Literally, we're signing autographs on our jerseys. And we're seeing these jerseys go up on eBay and be sold for thousands of dollars. And meanwhile, our families are struggling. That has to change. Not everybody is going to the NFL. They've been selling the dream of you're going to the NFL. No, you're in the NFL right now. Our ticket sales, our revenue, our view, viewmanship is just as big as theirs. So we're making just as much money and not more than them in some cases. Right? So you're in the NFL right now. Unfortunately, it's treated like an apprenticeship or a, uh, internship to the NFL and selling the dream that you're going to go. Don't everybody make it. Like, to be honest with you, for me to even step foot, I had to scrap, like, I had to have a certain ability to get in there. So don't every college player has that ability, but they are working. And there are. Now, oh, you're getting the free education. You're getting some meals. Uh, you, you, you have, that's just because I'm doing this right now. Yes. The second I'm not eligible anymore to play for you, I am going to lose all of these benefits. And even if you are still eligible, if a coach comes in and says, Marlon is no longer my dude, I got another guy coming in, your scholarship is not renewed. People think you get that for five <laughs> years. It is a one-year renewable deal. 
Yeah, it's a one-year renewal. All of that has to change. It has to be treated like professional sports. Think about it like this. Think of the lifestyle and the life of an NFL player and then think of a life of a collegiate player. Only difference is one guy is required to go to school. That's really the only difference. We really follow the same schedule. And to be quite frank, in college, it was actually harder than the NFL in, in, in terms of training. Yeah. Like the conditioning tests were harder. Um, you know, it was just when you got to the league, it's really like you arrived. I mean, you still like the guys like, like my bro Reggie Wayne. He played 16 years. Like he had to really follow a certain regiment to continue to survive all of those drafts, yes. right? So, you know, you look at guys like that, but they're a one in a million. So just looking at it from that perspective, it has to be, and I've said this when they, when they first discussed uh, players getting paid, it has to be a situation where you're making a decent amount of money, right? It has to be equality. And, you know, sometimes Raising Canes might have to pay for the whole LSU team to come over and make an appearance, and every guy gets some money, you know, because that's going to be the next issue. Derek Stanley going to make more money than John Smith. You know what I'm saying? So finding yep. that balance. Now, business is business. Obviously, Derek may have earned more because of his brand, but, you know, giving everybody that platform, an opportunity. There's enough money in all of these major college towns to spread some of the wealth to the student athletes. Yeah, and you can, wealth too. You can give a minimum to all the players and then allow people like Stingley to allow a dude, a Leonard Fournette, a Teron Matthew, when, when they were at the peak of your fame. And like you said, you may never be more famous, even if you're in the NFL. There's, when you are a college, Joe Burrow, outside of winning three Super Bowls in the NFL, will never be a bigger cult figure than he is in Louisiana. Never. It's not going to happen. That man has it for the rest of his life. In, that, in last year, imagine the amount of money in one year Joe Burrow could have made for himself, for himself and his family, in case he broke his leg in a bowl game and had to sit out. Or for the dudes you know, some cats peak in college. That's just it. But when they were in there, they were beasts, and they could have made their money. And I don't see how anymore we can continue to allow coaches to get all the money and the players to get none of it when the coaches don't have anything without those players, 49% of whom look like you and me. The facts. The structure. It starts with structure. It's structure to where – Yes, this is a college institute, and this is student athletes. But these coaches that's coming in, they're being treated like entertainers and professional athletes okay. because they have agents, right? Cool story, Joe Brady. Joe Brady didn't have no agents. He had relationships. Oh, but when, when LSU went to flaming and his coaching ability started to get recognized even on a professional level, and my boy Mickey told me, he said, Hey, bro, you got to go get that agent. <laughs> you got to go get an agent. It's business. <laughs> so, and he's literally a few years older than these kids that's playing. Yep. So it's, man, and the structure. And, and you can't fault the players either, right? Like, I worked hard for this. You know, I, I got I to gotta keep this. I got to get this. Um, 
can't fault the players for that. So it's not too much sharing the wealth in, in our community either. You know, you got your brethren has a small business um, or or he's he's trying to, you know, start a path that you can, you know, come up with something to where you can give back to even the guys you grind with. Uh, you know, make it a real L club. Make it a real O club at Ohio State. You know, I'm just it's, – it's certain things we, we have to – be able to come up with our own structures and have our list of demands and somewhere meet them in the middle and then come up with a solution to work for, uh, to help this because the mental health of health of players as well. Yes. Like, Hey, hey, I ain't grow this. I ain't grow this wild hair just to grow this wild hair. Now I, I didn't been through it. Go look at big fade back at LSU versus now, you know, I didn't went through a lot of stress and had to grow and, and had to understand. And then listen to my brethren say the same thing, because I'm one of those formal teammates, whether you're rich, poor, or, 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 or somewhere in the middle, I'm going to listen to you and I'm going to be your brother through it all, because we, we all need each other. You know, I, I didn't see guys be at the top of their game, man, the top, making millions, uh, you know, exploring the world, doing it all, but because of the structure and because not learning financial literacy, and because not knowing how to, um, to, 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 to make sure you keep your relationships balanced and uh, build wealth as opposed to becoming rich. See, we get promoted, rich, 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 rich. Right. I never forget, bro, if, we, if we're going too hard in the paint, stop me, bro. I don't want to lose time. Good. Hey, man, we clean here, baby. We, you say what you got to say. Yeah, so, okay, so 20, 2005, winter 2005 is like January. Right. Um, I never forget. We just left the bowl game. Um, we just lost to uh, Iowa. This was Coach Saban's citrus last bowl. Year. Yeah, that was Citrus, right. wasn't it? No, this was the Citrus. Yeah, this, this was, was Citrus. Yeah, that last, and it was raining. The Capital One. Yeah, it was yeah, wet, yeah. And nasty was out crazy. there. It was crazy. Defense um, was man. looking rough that day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey. <laughs> bro, it was wild. But that was my favorite bowl game. Like, we had the most fun at that bowl game. We were in Florida. We had a blast. Uh, that was my first time in Florida like that. And it was off the chain. Well, I remember Marcus Spears and Travis Daniels and Corey Webster, like that whole squad. It's like, here are my college teammates. We're going on semester break. You feel me? We come back for the spring semester. Man, them boys pulled up in BMWs. <laughs> Range Rovers, 745s, crazy. And I can remember, I never forget me and Tyson because our homegirls, Elysian Fields, had a video shoot that day for Soldierette. Like, you know, my homegirls from New Orleans, they had a video shoot, so they, so they were hitting hit me up. Hey, y'all coming to the video shoot? Yeah, we're going to be out there. It's going to be lit. Spears and all them back there. I said, oh, my bro and them go holler at them because they, they were in that transition phase. Like, Spears went from being LSU defense into signing with an agent. Right. And i never forget that video shoot, bro. Uh, we went out there, them boys had on throwback jerseys, hats, fresh G-Nikes. I mean, it was clean as a whistle. They in the car. So I, I, Alexis sent me the picture. I remember, I, I think I took C-Web keys. I took one of the keys. I said, one of y'all go give me this car. Give me this one of these cars. <laughs> I got, I got to have my, my moment. So I think it was Travis. Or, I forget. Alexis got the picture. I'm at the find it. Man, I hopped in that thing. I had my shoulder in. I took the picture. I'll never forget that. But that was the moment 
that reality changed for me. Mm-hmm. And then the focus went from not only getting your degree and excelling and working hard. I mean, that actually made me work harder seeing that. So the mentality going in that we had wasn't the way it is now. We weren't thinking wealth. We was thinking rich. Yes. Back then, bro. I never forget that, dog. And I'm like, me and Tyson look at each other like, oh, yeah, dog. We got to go. These was our teammates. Like, we knew about Dion Sands, all these rich. But I'm like, these my bros. And the, and then the double down in, uh, the next year was Skylar Green and, and Claude Roden. And then the triple down, four first rounders were Craig Davis, uh, 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 Debo, Jamarcus, and Lorraine. And, and, and these, that, now at this point, you're hitting me close to home. Right. Because <laughs> these the dudes, like, they were sophomores. And we were freshmen, so we were close to age. And LaRon brother, DeWine Land, who was already in the league, so he already had a little bread. And when, man, LaRon pulled up, he was number 30, and he pulled up on the 30s. On the all-white Hummer? Yeah, back when the Hummer was the thing. Folks don't know. If you, if you ain't about, like, there's a certain time. You remember, like, when the Hummer first <laughs> dropped, and you got to go back and see some early 90s hip-hop to see this thing. That joint was two lanes wide. <laughs> hey, Lil Wayne said it best. Lil Wayne was like, uh, "This was back uh, when 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 uh, when Birdman had a fade. When Hummers ain't come stretch, but Birdman had a made. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it was a it was a different time, it man. It was just a different time. It was a different time. And, and, and balling, you know, once you got older, like when I made it to the NFL. And I started to see these guys who who had all this money just be so miserable. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, that's not what I imagined. I thought we were supposed to be like happy right now. And they miserable. And I'm like, I'm in the NFL right now. I'm supposed to be happy. And at points in time, I was miserable. And it started to to drum a reality like, man, this is just really a hobby that you've gotten really good at to where it turned into a profession and you're making money with it. But the more money, the more potential problems, the more money, the more, you know, you know, living in a country we live in and just the energy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, gets more cutthroat. You dig? And, you know, folks get very business and they, they don't really care about the other side. So I think that just seeing that, it kind of, sh- you know, shifted my, my, my attention. Now it's more about, you know, building wealth for your right. family as opposed to, being able to get that humming of diamonds right now, you feel me? <laughs> Absolutely. And another one of the shifts that's going on, particularly for African-American players, is using their voice about social issues. You had universities that did not allow athletes to tweet at all during while they were on, you know, under the guise of their scholarships. You have these stories coming about about strength conditioning coaches, about head coaches using the N-word or treating black players differently. Quickly if you can. And I don't want you to have to put anybody's names if you don't feel comfortable. But did you have those experiences as a player, whether in high school or college with coaches who did not identify with you or treated you and others, other black players in a way that they thought like casual racism that they thought was okay? Yeah. Oh, yes, indeed. But it happened subconsciously. And I think that's the biggest difference. It wasn't like, 
I, I encourage like all coaches out there, particularly our Caucasian coaches, man, go watch Roots. You feel me? Go watch um, Mississippi. Uh, forget the name of the movie. Mississippi Burning. Burning Mississippi. You know, go watch Jingo. These different movies will show you exactly how African Americans were, uh, the the way they were spoke down to, as opposed to talk to like a man. So like you catch a lot of brothers. I had a few hold on moments in my deal, um, particularly as a coach, but um, as a player, what would happen is some of the players, you know, they come from low low poverty areas, but they grew up with street hustlers. So the street hustlers, you know, black men in their community, they had a certain level of respect that they actually get, you know, a certain level of humility they never really reached because of their ego, but it's a certain level of respect and a certain way that they carried themselves. And a lot of those players from these areas came in like that. See, me, yeah, I come from New Orleans, but I was raised in a different community. You know, at St. Joseph Working Community, my parents and the way they had me in church and in the community, you know, I knew to, if someone talked to me a certain way, how to approach it with humility first, right? So I kind of went into college with, 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 this, with this mindset. Everybody wasn't that way. You get to yell, and, and it's not so much you N-word, but it's more along the lines of, hey, boy. Like, they'll do the boy, subconsciously not knowing what boy means to us. Get in here, boy. You know, don't do it with such and such, boy. And that's why you call it the token black coach, but that's why you have a lot of African-American coaches on the staff to kind of almost not necessarily discipline, but, you know, lay the law of the land down, you know, a certain code. But isn't that the problem with it is that you have to have like a lot of these situations we see the black coaches are putting in situations where they are only dealing with primarily black player issues like, oh, you're in recruiting or you're on the the skill positions or something like that. And then you're used as, okay, well, you be the intermediary instead of those coaches learning how to communicate correctly with, with, and it ain't just like, it ain't just background. Like you said, it's that dismissiveness of, of tone. It's that thing of expectation where they think that, you know, you need this. They don't, they underestimate your intellectual capability as I'm here. I can be a student too. I'm not here just to, to, to snap this ball. You know what I mean? I think that that you see these things too often where players say, well, the coach is doing this. The player is the one that has to get dealt with. The player is the one that has to go talk to somebody. But the coach, nothing ever happens on the disciplinary level for the coach. Never. And, and, and that needs to change. I love my, my, my football story because I went so many different places. So I can say it was this one time and nobody could really figure out where I was, right? So <laughs> I did, I did, you know, to make it better for our, it's about the listeners. They need to hit a real, you know? Yeah. So, so I, I did have a coach and this coach I had so much admiration for, man. He, he kept it 100 with us and I'll never forget, he left a team. He left that team because that coach didn't give him any respect. It took him one time to talk down to him in front of us. That was it. He was out of there. And when he, when he spoke, and this actually built us up, when he spoke to us, he said, hey, man, y'all are all men, 
and as men is a certain uh, level of respect you deserve. So I'm out of here. I'm not, I do not want to leave y'all. I want to continue to coach y'all. But listen, y'all are all men, and I'm teaching y'all this. I'm telling y'all this. Y'all respect yourselves first and know that as a man, you have to be addressed a certain way. And when he told us that, we were heartbroken, but it just really set the standard of, of, of coaching. Now, I, I can say I had a story when I was a coach, right, and a coordinator may have talked to me in a very disrespectful way in front of the players. You know, my first mind was to go check him, right? But I approached the situation, hello, somebody, <laughs> with humility because the student athletes was there. But I went to him after, and I looked him in his face. I looked, him like a, looked at him as a, like a man, like a bird man say. I could have been, I could have pulled up in seven different places you was, but I didn't want to pull up on you like that. I wanted to come look at you in your face like a man. And I told him, I said, I said, I understand where you were coming from, but don't you ever disrespect me like that in front of our, uh, in front of our student athletes. Oh, and it was all apologetic after that. But moving forward, he had, he had a, a certain level of respect. So it's really, man, to answer your question, it's really about respect. And, and, and I think, um, once the respect is implemented, because it's, it's, it's too structured like slave-like mentality. Mm -hmm. Like we're out there working in the sun. It's hot. We got on these pads. We love it now. I love it, though. I ain't gonna, I'm not going to sit up here and, and play myself and don't say I don't miss it. But from that perspective, but it's more about the camaraderie and the fun and the fan base and, you know, everything around sports, which you love. You know, you've worked so hard to get to this point. The but, game ain't never been the problem. The game is something the problem. problem it's the business of the game that's the problem. That's the issue. That's the issue. And, and I think once once that business side, once equality, come on, LeBron James. I, I hear your NBA. I hear your Nike. That one word, equality. Once we start seeing equality, I think we'll see a better product for everyone. No resentment from the players anymore. None of this. Oh, you got to do it this certain way. No, judge me. Judge a man by his character. Judge him by, you know, what he brings in the character area as opposed to his race or his background or where he comes from. So that has to change. Man, it's going to be a difficult, difficult um, process to get through, but I hope this does not stop. I hope the momentum goes forward. Before I let you go, big dog, and you know we're going to talk again real soon, um, please tell the folks what else you got working um, and all the things that uh, that – that, that you are just, just irons in the fire. Well, like, like all of y'all out there, we all trying to figure out how to, how to live in the corona. So uh, definitely right now, just just being more creative uh, with the brand inside the trenches and my mall and favorite brand. I do want to personally thank Dave, uh, uh, Dave Grubb, y'all, for, for what he's done for, uh, for my brand as well. Just helping me, allowing me to come on and show weekly uh, has been huge. But you know, just connecting the dots, man. Uh, my relationship with the NOLA Gold rugby team yep. um, is huge. Uh, they've been helping uh, my company conquer sports out a lot. We actually use their uh, their rugby field for practice. So I want to definitely give them a, a shout-out for sure for, for, for their support. But we're just uh, preparing for what may be. Um, we do understand at Conquer, we have a uh, – Conquer Sports, we do have a lot of uh, extension plans that we're working because we may – have the student athletes a little longer depending on this. So just continue to keep that environment very small, uh, multiple groups as opposed to, you know, one big group and just, you know, just, just being here for them with that and the family. 
oh man, they they growing up just trying to. My wife's buying up different stuff around here, uh, little trampolines and stuff, a little tight and mauling and just trying to trying to keep them entertained. We can't bring them to yeah. Fun World or whatever, you know, so we can't go to Chuck E. Cheese. So it's just, you know, we got to be creative as parents as well, man. So, uh, man, thank you again. Y'all can follow me at BigFave504. Uh, me and my man D. Grell, we're going to keep y'all informed, baby. Yeah, this ain't the last time by far that you're going to see us together, um, either on – this podcast, either talking on his podcast or doing some other things in the future. We, we're, we're definitely working on uh, stuff to keep this going because, man, you know, this is, this is a great time. It's a difficult time, but it's a great time for opportunity if you want to seize it. And I feel like, you know, again, I'm a t- I, I say this every time we talk, either personally or on, on the show, you've been, you've been down since day one. And, and from the day we, we came across each other in the LSU press box, We've been two dudes going in the same direction. So I'm going to keep running with you, and you keep running with me, and we're going to get somewhere, dog. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right, baby. All right, man. We're going to talk soon. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Marlon Favorite, Big Fave 504. And this has been Hard in the Paint. We're going to be back again tomorrow with another great guest and more stuff to talk about. So check us out again. Download, rate it, and we'll be back again with more Hard in the Paint. This is David Grubb. I'm out. Thank you.